Welcome to part one of the fifth lecture in the Hobbit series, Bilbo Builds His Resume. In this lecture, I will discuss chapter eight, Flies and Spiders, chapter nine, Barrels Out of Bond, and chapter ten, A Warm Welcome. Before we get started, though, I need to take a minute to give some updates on a couple of big happenings on the horizon in the Tolkien Professor world. First, I am very excited to announce that I have been invited to be one of the keynote speakers at the most exciting Tolkien-related event of 2010. The event is called the Festival in the Shire, and it will take place in Wales this August. The festival is new this year, but the hope is that it will become an annual event and be at the heart of the Tolkien world for years to come. What makes the festival so incredible is its vision to be a meeting place for all of the different branches of Tolkien enthusiasm. The festival will have a scholarly conference, featuring several paper sessions, talks by prominent Tolkien artists, and keynote lectures by seven major Tolkien scholars. The list of speakers is incredible. Tom Shippey, author of J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Century, Doug Anderson, editor of The Annotated Hobbit, Jane Chance, Verlin Flieger, Colin Duriez, and John Garth. I feel immensely honored to have been included in this group, and I am preparing for the best and most engaging academic conference I have ever been involved in. This, however, is only a third of what's going on at this event. There will also be a collector's exposition, which will feature the work of many of the most prominent Tolkien artists in the world, including Alan Lee, Ted Naismith, Jeff Murray, Michael Haig, Roger Garland, and others. Several of the artists will be on hand at the festival to meet people and discuss their work. There will also be rare book displays, memorabilia, and collectibles. In addition, there will also be a fan-oriented festival with great live music, games, reenactments, and more. Through the Festival in the Shire, the organizers are setting out to change the Tolkien world, and I just can't describe how great I think this is. I began my podcast in the first place because I am not happy just staying in the all-too-isolated world of academia. I wanted to bring my scholarly work on Tolkien to a wider audience, and to make connections with people who might otherwise have been excluded from the serious discussion of Tolkien's work. I am simply delighted by the planning for the Festival for the Shire, because this is an event which embraces the same ideal, which is working to bridge the gaps that too often persist between scholars, artists, musicians, and fans. For more information on the festival and how you can get there, check out the festival's website at www.festivalintheshire.com. Now, the second announcement is a reminder about my upcoming Tolkien course. As I explained last fall, I am teaching my undergraduate Tolkien survey course at Washington College this spring, and I have made arrangements to record and post every session of my class for the whole semester. The class begins in only a few days, on Monday, January 18th. In this course, I will be covering all of Tolkien's major works and some of his minor ones, too. The reading load for the class is pretty heavy. My students will have to read about 150 to 200 pages per week to keep up with the class. You, of course, can listen to the course at your own pace, but I strongly recommend that you do the assigned reading before listening to any class session. This will be a fast-paced course, so what we talk about will not make that much sense to you if the text is not pretty fresh in your memory. In the next few days, I will be posting the full reading schedule for the class on my website. In the meantime, I can tell you now the list of works we will be reading for the course in the order in which we will discuss them. We will start with Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, followed by his poem, Mythopoeia. We will then read two of Tolkien's short stories, Leaf by Niggle and Smith of Wooten Major. With this preparation, we will then proceed through The Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings. 
So, those of you who have been longing for more content on this podcast for the last few months will get all that you wished for and then some. Between now and the end of May, I expect to release somewhere between 40 and 50 new episodes. So get out your copies of the books and start reading so you'll be prepared. That also reminds me to remind you that if you need a copy of any of the books we're discussing in the class, you can find them in the online bookstore on my website. Just go to www.tolkienprofessor.com and click on the bookstore. Okay, let's get back to The Hobbit. We last left the dwarves and Mr. Baggins on the edge of the dark and sinister forest of Mirkwood, after many adventures in the wild. Now the expectations that we are led to bring to Mirkwood all suggest that this will be the wildest and most dangerous section of the wild. Bjorn, for instance, warns them that in Mirkwood, the wild things are dark, queer, and savage. And remember, this is Bjorn speaking, a guy who is right at home among queer and savage creatures. If the creatures in Mirkwood are queer and savage by his standards, Mirkwood must be so wild that it makes the land around the Misty Mountains seem tame in comparison. When the dwarves and Bilbo actually enter Mirkwood, however, what they find is perhaps different than we might have expected. There do seem to be dark and savage creatures in the forest. At night they are surrounded by sinister eyes in the dark, including horrible, pale, bulbous sort of eyes. Insect eyes, as Bilbo thinks. However, the party is never attacked. Earlier, they had barely made it into the Misty Mountains before they were set on and captured by goblins. But in Mirkwood they travel for days and days without any actual encounters with wild creatures. Instead of fierce and aggressive creatures trying to kill them, what they find is a pervasive eeriness and strange magic. They encounter a magical stream full of black water, which they must cross but must not touch. They hear the sounds of a great hunt coming to them through the woods north of the path, the distant blowing of horns and baying of hounds, but they never see any hunters. They encounter a strikingly colored jet-black heart, or buck, and a pure white hind, or doe, and her white fawn, but though Thorin shoots the heart, they never find them or learn their significance. They hear, drifting through the trees, the sounds of laughter and singing, and, although it is the laughter of fair voices, and the singing is beautiful, they hurry on faster, for it sounds eerie and strange. All in all, it's clear that when they enter Mirkwood, they are not simply moving into an especially wild part of the wild. They have crossed a much more significant, magical, and mysterious boundary. It is as if they have crossed into the realm of fairy. In order to understand their experiences in Mirkwood, we need a little bit of background. You will remember that I mentioned in a previous lecture that Tolkien often uses the word fairy and elf almost interchangeably in The Hobbit. Nowadays, when we think of fairies, we tend to think of something that looks rather like Tinkerbell, tiny little people with diaphanous wings, so it may seem strange and counterintuitive to connect fairies with Tolkien's elves. Tinkerbellism, this image of diminutive, cute, and cloying little fairies, is a sad modern phenomenon, a cheapening and bastardization of a medieval literary tradition. In the Middle Ages, fairies were neither tiny nor cute. In the classic poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the Green Knight is a fairy. He is enormous, probably seven feet tall, and carries a huge battle-axe. When he comes into the court, all of Arthur's knights marvel at him and are terrified. And that's even before they see him pick up his own head off the floor and ride off with it. In the poem Lanval, the knight Lanval meets in the woods an indescribably beautiful woman, who takes him in and loves him, and feeds him in a tent simply dazzling with the wealth of nations. 
When Lanval's beloved presents herself at Arthur's court at the end of the poem, that greatest and most glorious of all human courts looks shabby and poor by comparison, and the lady's least handmaiden outshines Queen Guinevere herself in beauty like the sun eclipsing the stars. These are the fairies, the elves of medieval tradition, and it is from these that Tolkien's elves derive. I don't have time to discuss the fairy tradition at great length. It would get us too far off topic. What we need to know about fairies in order to appreciate what is happening when we enter Mirkwood is what Tolkien emphasizes about fairies in his essay on fairy stories. Tolkien there points out that in the old tradition, fairy, spelled F-A-E-R-I-E, is the name of the land of the fairies, Elfland. And most of the old fairy stories are stories of what happens when a mortal wanders into this strange and perilous land of fairy. This is what happens to Lanval when he meets his elven beloved. This is what Gowan must do to fulfill the oath that he swears to the Green Knight. To venture into fairy is to encounter a world of wonder and enchantment, a world that operates by rules and customs strange to us, and in which mortals may easily lose themselves or become entrapped. Tolkien calls fairy the perilous realm, not because the elves are hostile or belligerent, but because their world is so likely to overwhelm them, even if just with its beauty. There are a few times in Tolkien's works when he draws upon these traditions of mortal intrusion into the land of fairy. The most obvious is when the Fellowship of the Ring enters Lothlorien. You may remember that Aragorn and Boromir even use the word perilous to describe the Golden Wood. But the second most prominent place we see it is right here in chapter 8 of The Hobbit. When Bilbo and the dwarves enter Mirkwood, they expect and we expect them to encounter dangers like the ones they've been encountering. But they don't. Instead, they find themselves in a kind of fairy otherworld, a world of strange and unknown magic, of beautiful but eerie singing drifting through the trees. There are two incidents that I would emphasize here. The dwarves and Bilbo are warned against the magic stream by Bjorn, he tells them that it carries enchantment and a great drowsiness and forgetfulness. When Bomber falls into the river, he does indeed fall into a deep sleep, and when he wakes we learn that he has forgotten everything since the beginning of the story. However, it turns out that there was more to the magic of this dream than just a magic sleep. Bomber has dreams containing visions of the elves, of the fairy people. He sees lights ablaze in the forest, and a woodland king sitting at a great feast, accompanied by merry singing. Bomber sleeps because he is enchanted. He is drawn by magic into a vision of fairy. Now, later on, when they see lights off in the trees and creep up to peer into a firelit clearing, they see a sight that looks exactly like Bomber's dreams. Indeed, it seems that Bomber's visions were not mere imagination. The glimpses he got in his sleep of the fairy world were true ones. But Bomber and his companions find, as many mortals in fairy stories have found, that it does no good to try to intrude by force. When the dwarves run forward into the clearing, the elves vanish as if by magic. The second time this happens, Bilbo is cast into a magical and enchanted sleep, and he too has elven visions in his sleep. He's gone like Bomber, the other dwarves say. Finally, the third time, when Thorin steps into the clearing, he falls like a stone enchanted. This time he's not just taken into visions of fairy. Thorin is taken in the dark and bound and carried away to the palace of the fairy king. This, of course, is one of the dangers of fairy. Mortals do sometimes get drawn into it or taken into it and never escape. The elven king calls Mirkwood his realm, and he calls it a crime to wander in it without his leave. The doors of the elven king's palace are magic doors, and through them there is no escape 
unless perhaps for Bilbo, with the help of his magic ring. Thorin and his companions, having entered the realm of the fairies, and even dared to intrude upon their private feasts, are ensnared there. However, there is much about Mirkwood that does not sound at all like fairy. The primary characteristic of Mirkwood, as the dwarves and Bilbo experience it, is its darkness. Merry characterizes Bilbo's description of Mirkwood perfectly when he remembers it in the Two Towers. He says that Mirkwood was all dark and black in the home of dark black things. Mirkwood is thoroughly and oppressively dark. The nighttime in Mirkwood is not what you would call pitch black, but really pitch. And everything in it is black. The moths, the bats, the squirrels, the butterflies, even the river, as we've seen. There is evidence, however, that Mirkwood is not naturally dark and black. It is a forest twisted and corrupted by evil. Notice, for instance, the description of the trees that form the gate around the opening of the path into Mirkwood. They are so strangled with ivy and hung with lichen that they can't bear more than a few blackened leaves. The forest is not healthy. It is not itself thriving. Once in the forest, Bilbo finds that the tangled boughs and matted twigs beneath completely choke off the sun. It is everlastingly still and dark and stuffy. Even the dwarves, who like the dark, we will remember from chapter 1, are longing for sun and sky and the feel of wind on their faces. The ultimate expression of the darkness and corruption of the forest, however, is the giant spiders. Bilbo observes right away that the nastiest things they saw were the cobwebs, dark, dense cobwebs with threads extraordinarily thick. Similarly, the eyes in the dark that he likes the least are the enormous, bulbous insect eyes. The spider colony, later on, is described as a place of dense black shadows, black even for that forest, like a patch of midnight that had never been cleared away. The colony is the darkest part of the forest that they see, the center of the blackness, as it were. Now the real center of the evil infecting the forest is further south, in Dol Guldur, where the necromancer, later revealed to be Sauron in disguise, lives. But the connection between the spiders and the darkness is not accidental. In the Silmarillion, Tolkien tells the story of a monster named Ungoliant. She took the shape of a colossal spider, and her webs were spun out of darkness itself. She was drawn to light, just as the Mirkwood spiders are drawn to the dwarves' campfire, but she hated it, and she would actually consume bright and beautiful things, and then use the power they gave her to generate darkness, a darkness that could be felt. In The Lord of the Rings, we will learn that the Mirkwood spiders are in fact the distant descendants of Ungoliant herself, the offspring of Ungoliant's last living child, Shelob, whom Sam and Frodo meet in Curathungal in The Lord of the Rings. When Tolkien describes the spider's colony as a patch of midnight, he may be describing more than natural shadow. There are, therefore, two different elements that we can see operating in the forest of Mirkwood, and we must be careful not to combine or confuse them. To enter Mirkwood is to enter the realm of the Elven King, which is like entering the perilous realm of Fairy. Mirkwood is also corrupted by darkness and evil, and wicked creatures are living in it. The Elves, however, are not evil. They are not wicked folk, we are told. Far from causing the evil of the forest or being a part of it, they oppose it. The narrator hints that there is good magic, probably Elven magic, that keeps the forest path clear of the huge cobwebs of the spiders. This hint would seem to be confirmed when we learn later that even the empty clearings where the elves have celebrated their nocturnal feasts retain enough good magic to prevent the spiders from approaching them. 
As I've said, the spiders are like the poster children for the evil of Mirkwood, and they are the only living things that the wood elves had no mercy upon. The description that we get of the elven king and his people at their feast in the woods emphasizes their beauty, their joy, and their connection to nature. The elves are decked equally in gems and in flowers. Their gleaming hair was twined with flowers. Green and white gems glinted on their collars and belts. The king himself is crowned not with gold, but with a crown of leaves, and we learn later that he wears the crown of red leaves and berries in autumn and one of woodland flowers in the spring. As is true of almost all of the elves that we meet in Tolkien's works, these elves are singing songs filled with mirth that are loud, clear, and fair. Their looks and their actions clearly set them apart from all of the dark black creatures that live in Mirkwood. Now, we know that these elves are not perfect. Their distrust of strangers is called a fault, and the elven king clearly has a moral weakness where treasure is concerned. I'll come back to this when I talk about the dragon horde in lectures 6 and 7, but I will say in passing here that the love of treasure and beautiful things, the elven king loves silver and white gems especially, we're told, is not in itself necessarily a bad thing. However, we can see that part of what motivates the elven king's desire to increase his wealth is a kind of envy. He is eager for more treasure because he had not yet as great a treasure as other elf lords of old. Tolkien tells us that the Wood Elves are different from the High Elves, the kind of elves we met with Elrond at Rivendell, though they are related. We get here, on pages 151 and 152, a very simplified history of the Elves, a kind of synopsis of the Silmarillion in one paragraph and translated into very simple language without the Elvish names. Notice that Tolkien uses the word fairy to describe the true homeland of the Elves in the distant west, Valinor, as it's named in the Silmarillion. Entering the realm of the elven king of Mirkwood is much like passing into fairy. Entering Lothlorien is even more like it, but the true fairy lies in the west. Anyway, these wood elves are not high elves. They are more dangerous and less wise. But, at the end of the day, they are still elves, and that is good people. We are even invited at one point to contrast the elves directly with the goblins. The wood elves are not goblins, we are told, and were reasonably well-behaved even to their worst enemies when they captured them. The connection is natural enough, of course, since the goblins and elves are now the two groups of people who have captured Bilbo's friends. We get a further poetic invitation to contrast the two in the first little song that the elves sing when they are rolling the barrels through the trap door into the river. Roll, 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 rolling down the hole. Heave, ho, splash, plump, down they go, down they bump. The line, heave, ho, splash, plump, may perhaps call to mind the first song the goblins sing. Lines like, clap, snap, the black crack. Both are onomatopoetic, and both are very simplistic recountings of the actions the singers are currently doing. The gentle and even silly song of the elves, however, is worlds away from the harsh and violent song of the goblins. It is more like the tra la la lolly song of the elves in Rivendell. It is an almost nonsensical song that does nothing but translate into words, through music and poetry, the delight that the elves have for their work and the world around them. It's like the elves can't do anything without singing, even if the song ends up sounding like nonsense. Okay, so the elves are good people, and they are enemies of the evil that is infesting and infecting Mirkwood. But what then are we supposed to make of their imprisoning of the dwarves? Tolkien's handling of that situation is quite delicate. 
First he gives some background on the relations between elves and dwarves, and he is careful to give both sides of the story, explaining the grievance that the dwarves and elves both had against each other in old days. The story is in the Silmarillion, by the way. You can read it there and judge for yourself. Just as Tolkien presents both sides of the ancient quarrel, he sets up the situation between the Elf King and the Dwarves so that we can easily see both sides of the situation. From the Elf King's perspective, he was feasting with his people in the forest when they were three times attacked by a band of desperate vagabond dwarves. He has a long-standing distrust of dwarves, and Thorin will give him no explanation at all for his presence in Mirkwood, which certainly looks suspicious. Perhaps it might seem to you that the Elven King is rather overreacting, and that he and the Wood Elves have little to fear from a small band of starving dwarves. However, if you read the whole story in the Silmarillion, you find that the old dispute began when a small company of dwarven craftsmen killed a great Elven King in his own hall, stealing the treasure that then caused the battle. His caution is not totally unwarranted, and Thorin's refusal to explain his mission is pretty suspicious. On the other hand, Thorin's position is equally understandable. He and his party were traveling through the forest on business of their own, and with no more intention of bothering the wood elves than they had of bothering the goblins in the Misty Mountains. When they began to come near to death by starvation, they ran desperately to the elven feasting to beg for food. In response, he's cast into an enchanted sleep, and then tied up and dragged before the elven king as a prisoner. He knows his own innocence, and his outrage at how he is being treated is not at all unwarranted. Notice that we can see the same pattern again when Balin and the other dwarves are brought before the Elven King. Balin, after nearly starving and barely escaping from the spider colony, finds their party arrested and brought before the king like criminals. He asks with justifiable outrage, Are the spiders your tame beasts or your pets if killing them makes you angry? The king, of course, already on edge at what begins to look like increasing evidence of a dwarven conspiracy, is justifiably offended by this remark, and both parties leave the encounter feeling that they are obviously the injured or insulted party. Thorin and the Elven King will end up being allies by the very end, and Tolkien's handling of their dispute here sets us up as readers to understand the tension between them, and yet to be able to sympathize with both. The elves and the dwarves might be against each other for now, but we emerge from these chapters without really being led to think ill of either side. Okay, that's it for part one. I'll probably post the first session or two of my class before I can post part two of lecture number five, but I'll complete this lecture as soon as I can. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.